Today's podcast discusses building a culture of innovation, the need to fail. In 2015 in Sydney, Head of Marketing Innovation for Google, Lee Hunter, was joined by UW alumnus Tristan Masters, who was then Director of Professional Services and Analytics Lead at Red Planet. Tristan chats with Lee about the critical role of failing and learning in discovery. So I, I guess, firstly, Lee, if you'd just like to give everyone a bit of an overview of, of your journey and, and what it takes to be a leader in innovation. I think, you know, Google, at least in the US, is sort of a 15-year-old company now. I think you're not the new kid on the block that I think sometimes you're still perceived to be. And I think, speaking from somebody who is trying to run a, effectively a startup within a 95-year-old airline, um, you know, there are some challenges in terms of you know, engendering a culture of innovation. So do you want to give us a bit of a, a spiel about yeah, by all means. Um, and firstly, uh, thank you everyone for coming. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm flattered that you want to maybe hear what I have to say. So my journey is I've, I've just moved back to Australia. I've, I've been here for about a year and a half. Uh, and I'd spent 10 years away. So I had seven years in London and, and three in San Francisco. And, and one of the reasons why I'm talking about innovation so much is that I've, I've, I've found the, the move back to be a, a bit of a stark one in the way that Australia presents itself as a country around innovation. Why aren't we're doing more when we have so much talent. Why can't we poke our head up, not just in Asia Pacific, but in the rest of the world, when there are so many smart people here, people such as yourselves in the room, great organisations like UWA. So I've been thinking about this deeply a lot, and, and it's the kind of thing that you're going to hear me expound upon here, and if you have thoughts afterwards, I would love to have a conversation with you about it, because it's something that I'm still trying to learn more about. But effectively, my journey is that, like, like a lot of people, I think the pull of London for a Perth person, uh, particularly when I've I've got a British passport, thanks to my dad being British, um, was really, really strong. And uh, I've been working at Google now for about uh, nine years or so. So very, I, I was fortunate enough to get a, a role in Google in the early days. It's a 15-year-old company, but back when I started, we were still trying to figure it out. I think we've gotten better, but certainly a long way to go uh, around things. And I wanted to go to Google because I just thought it was a place for ideas. I had spent, my first time in, in, in London, I was working for, I was doing marketing for an investment bank, which is about the most dull type of marketing I think you could possibly do. Um, so when I first got to Google, I, I, I was, the interview process took four and a half months, and there was 14 interviews, and each one was like a knockout competition, so it was the most stressful experience I think I'd had. Anyway, when I first got to Google, I set myself this task. I was like, this is a place for ideas. I'm going to come up with an idea in my first three months and see if I can get something off the ground. I mean, who the hell was I? But this was the, the feeling that I had in the organisation. It was, it was a, they were, I almost felt like they wanted it from me as soon as I walked in the door. And there's a great UWA connection here because I still have very strong ties to UWA, hence why I'm, I'm so happy to be talking with you all here. And one of my professors who took me through that, that sort of Masters of e-marketing information management and all that kind of, which is just Masters now, I rang him up and said, I've got this idea for a student competition around marketing on the internet. Can you help me? And effectively the way this worked was that groups of students were given about $200 to spend on advertising on Google and we would create a curriculum for professors so it was very much just a gift to them. They didn't have to do extra work, it would, it would tie into to the, um, the structures that they already had in place and these teams would go out, find a business that's never advertised on Google, do a campaign for them, we would judge the best ones and we would, we would give them certificates and, and prizes and all sorts of things. And it was my way back into UWA. My professor, Jamie Murphy, who's no longer there anymore, he helped me do this thing. And within the first year, we got it up and running. They said yes to it, bizarrely, for someone who'd only been there for a short amount of time. 
And we had 10,000 students in our first year, and it's still going. I think it's like 80,000 students do it, do it every year. But that was the mentality. That was, it was like, this is a place for ideas. My God, I've been sitting in this investment banking world where they, I was saying to someone before, the way they, uh, they, they talk about people who are sort of in my position, and, and I don't know if you, any of you work in investment banking, maybe you've heard this before, but um, you're treated like mushrooms in that they keep you in the dark and they feed you lots of shit. But so when I got to Google, it was just a case of, come on, just let's, let's talk, let's get ideas, this is all new, this is all fresh, what can you give us? So anyway, then I went to, uh, from, from, from Google in London to YouTube in San Francisco, uh, where I was running brand and creative there. So it was all about coming up with ridiculous new ideas. This is, this is the, the Wild West, even more so. This is the birth of, of user-generated content. The, the YouTube that many of us know now, we were, we were still trying to figure out how we were more than just dogs on skateboards and funny cat videos. And it's still that, but it's, it's, it's a lot of other stuff. So then it was a case of, of I've, I, I wanted to come up with more ideas. And I can talk about these at length, but just to give you the headline, we, we partnered with NASA to create a student competition where kids could upload an experiment to um, YouTube. We would judge the best ones, and then we actually packed these into a rocket, sent them up to the International Space Station, and performed them live and streamed them on YouTube for the world to see. We made a movie with Ridley Scott about a day in the life of the world. So we asked everyone to upload content on a particular day in, in time, and we created a film that premiered at Sundance and, and went around uh, the world and got great reviews, and it was one of the best experiences I think I've had. I started the YouTube Music Awards, where we were working with Lady Gaga and Eminem and all these people, and I've just gotten so hooked on this, this ridiculous fever for coming up with ideas. What are these big things? What are these almost, just give me the most ridiculous thing you can. I want to see if we can do it. And thankfully, I've been pretty good at actually, well, at least getting people to say yes. I can't say they've always been successes. And I want to talk about the, the, why it's okay to fail. But this, this kind of gets me back to my earlier point about coming back to Australia where that fever I felt when I was in London, that fever I felt when I was in San Francisco about coming up with things, getting them done, everyone wants it to happen has been somewhat diminished coming back to Australia. And I want to know why. Because I think we're all smart, we all want to do things, and there's, there's something that's going on that is holding us back a little bit. Anyway, I've got, lots of, I've got lots of ideas about that, but that's me in a brief nutshell about where I am and how I got here. That's great. And I think, do you feel like that coming back to Australia, do, do you feel like that, that lack of ability to get things over the line or sort of in, you know, engender these good ideas as a function of geographical isolation, or do you feel like that's a function of Google's exponential growth in terms of size, or do you think it's a combination of those things? It's a, it's a great question, and again, I don't, I don't have solid answers for this. So the first thought you would have about why Australia might not be as innovative as we should would be to talk about things like the tall poppy syndrome. The idea that we're okay. Why would you poke your head up over the parapet if it's just going to get you in trouble? Uh, there's an inherent sense of, 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 of failure and how bad that can be for us. That's the first thing you go to. I'm not sure if that's necessarily true. I mean, as I think about it, there's a number of, of reasons. I don't think it's inherent to Google. I think it's, it's, it's something that's... I speak to a lot of other people in, in technology companies, and I, and I don't understand why we haven't got more successful startups here when we have this talent. Again, I keep on coming up with this idea. There's so much talent here, but the, the parallel I would draw is Israel. So you, you can say, we're a small uh, country, we, we don't have the scale, we don't have the resources. Then you look at Israel, it's got like seven point something million people, it's surrounded by enemies, it's been at war basically since it started, it has no natural resources. But I think it's got more 
in terms of the number of companies that are listed on the NASDAQ, it over-indexes everyone by a mile. And so why is that the case? Why can't Australia be in that mix as well? And I think there's some cultural reasons why that's the case. If, if I read this great article we were talking about a little bit before when we were having some drinks outside about why is Israel doing so well around these things? And, and there's a, a great book called Startup Nation which posits the idea that the mandatory military training that happens in Israel is an incredible factor in this. You are forced into a situation at a very young age to have incredible responsibility and to get rewarded for displaying creativity and improvising. And this is just something that happens naturally in their culture, but everyone does it. And it has bred this idea of people trying things out at an early age where that doesn't happen here. The other thought that they have is around immigration and that as it's a largely immigrated population, of which we are, but not to their extent, people new to a country with a fresh start feel more comfortable taking risks. If I'm starting from scratch, I can do anything. And I think we have a little bit more of that fear of there's a model that we want to follow here. It's a bit difficult to break out of that mould. So look, I, I, don't, I don't have a perfect answer, and I think tall poppy syndrome is maybe one part of the puzzle, but we should be doing better if we have thoughts from people in the room and you want to share a drink with me and, and give me your thoughts, I would love to hear them because this is something I'm going to be thinking about a lot and I, I really want to get to the bottom of it if I can. More military service, it sounds like, is the answer. <laughs> exactly. Innovation. Um, interesting. Um, so obviously a UWA event, I'd be remiss not to, to ask the question, what, what role do universities and you know, universities like UWA, where we've both attended for many years, play in sort of that drive for innovation and, and entrepreneurship? Yeah. The, the, the follow-on to that, to the, when I spout that kind of stuff, is like, how do you fix it? And I think that the, the way you fix it is to genuinely focus on STEM education. And, and if you're not familiar with STEM, it's science, technology, engineering, and maths. And there's a few things that sort of get me to that as, as the, I don't want to say silver bullet, but I mean, it's going to be a huge factor in, in, in the future. The first is if you look at just the simple growth of what, ocup what occupations, what jobs are moving quicker, Three quarters of them in the future are based around STEM. So you want to go to where the growth is happening. The other thing that happens is that I think the, the figure is something like 60 to 70% of all hex debt is associated with careers that likely won't exist in their form in 10 years' time. So you have to go to where everything is moving. Like the, the, the world is heading towards STEM. The world is heading, heading towards digital literacy. And I think this is why it's great to see UWA taking a focus on STEM. I think we've got a long way to go, particularly in terms of getting women into science, technology, engineering, and maths. But that's, that's definitely the future. I, and I think we even start even younger. I, I, my, uh, the high school I went to is, is Wesley College in, in Perth. And uh, I'm a science ambassador for them. We're helping them develop a new science building recognising this idea that if we are going to tackle this problem, if it's so endemic in a culture where you're not going to get rid of a thing like tall poppy syndrome, if that is the problem, overnight, the way you get to it is that you focus on where the energy is going to be over the coming years, and that is absolutely 100% science, technology, engineering, and maths, and building that digital literacy. And, and I think UWA, for me, one of the interesting things is in, that, in the bizarre, the MEMIM, the Master of E-Marketing Information Management, it doesn't exist anymore because it's kind of been rolled up into to just general marketing, but it was the only place in all of Australia that gave me the opportunity to do electronic marketing. 
There was no other place. UWA was, was absolutely cutting edge on doing that. And uh, I could have gone anywhere in the country, but I, I managed to be able to stay where I grew up, uh, which was fantastic. And I think that, that spirit, that, that focus on, if UWA is going to be a world-class university or continue to be a world-class university, it's going to be because of reasons like that, trying new things, being future-oriented, and then you know, not being afraid if the degree doesn't quite work so well, the MEMIM doesn't exist anymore. Who cares? I had a great time. I've done well out of it. We've moved it into something else. It's not a failure. It doesn't exist anymore. We don't need to, to, to decry it. It's actually something to be celebrated. A perfect segue into my next question, which is about uh, the role of failure and in innovation. I think obviously you know, YouTube and Google have been glittering successes sort of over the last few years, and I think, but you know, one of your esteemed colleagues, Eric Schmidt, once said, you know, a mind set in its ways is a mind wasted, and I think that's, you know, I'm not too big on inspirational quotes, but I, um, I, that's something that really stayed with me when I was you know, working for a, a startup here in Sydney, and that notion of, you know, have a crack, but if you're going to fail, at least do it quickly, or, um, yeah. you know, the, yep. the notion of even called it flirting, which I thought was a euphemism that I wasn't apprised of, but um, can you talk to us, you know, and the, about some of your experiences with failure, because I think, in my experience, it's, it's quite often you get railroaded into thinking this is what's going to take us to glory, and it's quite often not the case. And as you're going, sort of things shape and mould as, you, as you're going on, you end up in a materially different place than you thought you were going to be. Yeah, look, I, I think failure is such a critical, critical part of the process. And, I, and failure is a, a, a difficult word. I, I, I tend to want to use the, the, the language of science a little more around testing an hypothesis and, and being iterative about things rather than failing. But it's certainly if you do fail, you know, let's, let's stay with that word. I mean, if you do fail, absolutely fail fast and, and figure out what went wrong and move on and move on quickly. And it's flattering to hear that Google's, you say Google's been a success and, and YouTube's been a big success. But I mean, we can't forget that there have been aspects, there have been products that Google has done that YouTube has launched which haven't been successes. You know, I, th I think about things like Google Glass, people know about that. Google Plus, another thing. You know, with YouTube, we spent a long time trying to turn YouTube into effectively what is now known as the Netflix model. Didn't work. But the idea is that if you fail fast enough, if you figure out what you've learned and you can move on from that very quickly, that's great. Learning is part of the process. There's also a company-wide culture you mentioned a quote from Eric Schmidt, but there's another great one from Larry Page, the CEO of what is now Alphabet, um, which is, if you're not doing some things that are crazy, then you're not doing the right things. And in the new model, at least in the world that we exist in, you have to have an array of bets. You have to have your self-driving cars next to Google search. You have to be able to think about you know, one of the things is we've got a contact lens that can sense your blood sugar levels and alert you if it's getting low for, for diabetics. What has that got to do with Google? Who knows? But that's what people said about self-driving cars. What has that got to do with Google? But if you think about self-driving cars, the model now starts to get a little bit clearer because you go, well, if I've got a self-driving car and I integrate that with Google Maps and navigation and we have a stake in Uber as well, why does anyone need to own a car anymore? You know, the future in 20 years will be that I call up a car, a, a car using an Uber app or something or whatever that might be in the, in the future. The self-driving car comes our way. You get to your destination through the self-driving car. Then you think about what that means for cities. You don't have to have huge amounts of, of, of real estate dedicated to roads, to, to, to parking lots. You have, hopefully, in an ideal world, if we all believe what the intelligence within these systems can do, fewer accidents on the road. There are all sorts of good things that roll out of this, the, the model being, let's just try a whole range of things. 
Let's just see if, you know, make these educated bets. Some will fail. The majority probably will fail. Uh, but that's okay because we'll learn from those and that will strengthen the things that do succeed and we'll figure out how to roll those into other things as the future progresses. And I think the, the Google Car concept is one that's fascinating and, and definitely one to watch. And I think the statistic I heard was that 53 million hours in the States alone are spent in traffic, you know, going up, up and down the 101 in, in, in California, which I'm sure you're familiar with. But, I mean, imagine what you could do productively with that time in, in, outside of the infrastructure. And yeah. So it's, fa it's a fascinating one to watch. So talking about talent and, and attracting talent, I think, is really important. I think one thing that I, I perceive Google to have done very well is to focus less on, I mean, obviously, there's a huge focus on product innovation and strategy and that sort of thing, but you know, in the early days, really spending a lot more time hiring the, hiring the right talent. You mentioned you know, the, the gladiator-style you know, four-month interview process that you yeah. had to endure. I mean, how do you go about sort of attracting the right talent, particularly in, in Sydney, where we do see a lot of people trying to go to Singapore and the States and, and elsewhere. So what, what, some, what are some of the strategies you've employed to attract that talent? Yeah, I mean, one of the... Just as a very quick anecdote to, to sort of explain what built my mindset around this is when I was going through that interview process, uh, the final interview was with the, Lorraine Tuhill, who runs marketing for Google globally. And I was bombing the interview. It was, it was just a, a terrible interview. And I, I, was, I was really thinking... As I was trying to sound intelligent on, on one, in one side, I was in the other, I was just like, God, I have to go back to that goddamn bank. But, I'm sorry, apologies to people who work in banks, I'm sorry. Uh, but then she saw on my, the bottom of my CV, I used to be a musician for years. I used to have a band in Perth and, and we used to tour around a little bit. And she saw I just had a line that said I used to write and perform my, my music. And she jumped on that. And that became the basis for over half of the interview because she was more interested in the things that surround that, the stuff around what made me want to do that, what was, the, I guess, the entrepreneurial spirit to go and try and cut your teeth starting a band, what was the, the creative process around writing a song, how did you deal with crowds that didn't clap, all these kind of things. And at the time, I was just quite happy just to not feel like I was failing, but really what she was trying to get to was this idea of sort of the entrepreneurial, culturally-minded, interesting, interested and curious side of me that doesn't come through a written CV. You know, you're, and, and so now when I, when I meet people, when I think about the talent that I want to get involved in the teams that I work in, it's, it's, it's so much less about what you have done and so much more about what you will do. So it's about the, the, the sort of interrogating questions, the ones that are, what are you interested in? What, 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 are you, what are you excited about? What, what can't you wait to tell me? You try and frame this in, in, in a work sense as much as possible, but you know, I, don't, I don't care that you worked for a company X and did, I can read that in the CV. I want to get a sense from you about the passion, the, the, the fire that you have, because that's the stuff that's going to take us through. That's the stuff that's going to mean that we want to work together and we want to get things done, and it's going to be easier for everyone to go with that energy and that flow in order to make, in order to make things happen. It's a harder thing to figure out in, in the interview process, but that's why it took me, you know, 14 interviews, four and a half months and all that stuff. It's because everyone's trying to get to the bottom of that. And to be honest, it's, it's, it's a pain in the butt doing interviews and trying to figure out how to draw this out of people. But when you get it right, and when you're excited to work with someone, when you really want to just share ideas and, and, and sort of pull someone to the side and say, think of it this. What do you think of it? And, and they go, oh, that's great, that's great. And, and when that, there's that additive energy to things, that, that's my favourite part of work. That's my favourite part of work. So I would much rather spend ten times the interview process as trying to get to that right person who can, I can do that with 
rather than quickly hire someone because my headcount's going to freeze because there's a year-end happening. Uh, it's, it's a hard thing to wrap your head around in, in the busy flow of, of work, but it, it's certainly something that I've tried to focus on. And then just very quickly, it, when you do find that person, it's not the end of it. I mean, certainly you have to spend a lot of time drawing things out of them, making them feel like I did when I first got to Google, that things are wanted, that you're in a place of ideas. You, you stop someone going to Singapore by making them feel like what's happening in Sydney is where the action is and that you don't have to have that brain drain, that whether it's, it's initially true or not, that at least they feel like it's true, that things can happen and that you're in the right team to get things done. Terrific. Well, thank you very much. We did have a few more questions, but I think we've been having too much of a good time. So I might throw you out to you guys, and we've got um, time for a few audience questions. I believe there's some roving mics coming around, so if you are asking a question, can I please ask you to yell into the microphone? We want to hear you on the podcast. Thanks for your thoughts. Um, just going back to why Australia might not be so innovative at the moment. I mean, if, if we get a good education in Australia, if we work hard, then we live a pretty, you know, we stand a good chance of living a fairly comfortable life. Is it the, this necessity is the mother of all invention? We can live comfortably so we don't have to innovate? Yeah, um, I, I think that there's definitely something to that as well. The kind of she'll be right, mate kind of thing like you know, the, 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 when I explain it to people who don't come from Australia I explain the she'll be right mate thing where everyone's comfortable we can go have a beer we can get to the beach why should I slug my guts out I can leave at three o'clock on a Friday and we'll be fine and then there's the tall poppy thing and so many people don't understand that if they don't come from Australia but I think there is a level of comfort here I remember when I, when, when I came back I'd, I'd had the most intense period of work I'd ever had working in, in San Francisco where I think in a in a month period, I'd received 8,000 emails and sent 1,500 emails or something like that. It was, it was basically like I was sending an email every three minutes or something weird. I can't remember the exact number. And then when I came here, the, the, I was used to that level of just moving. And I got here and everyone was so slow. I was like, oh, God, why do I have to send you a follow-up email? What? And, and they were like, it's chill out. It's fine. It's fine. It's funny. And then I mentioned this to my friends in, in Perth, and they're like, oh, Sydney's out of control. It's so quick. <laughs> like, What's happening in Perth? Is anything getting done in Perth? Um, but I think there definitely is this idea of like, yeah, you know, we're pretty comfortable. Quite early in your talk answering questions, you said, why is Australia not doing more? I'm going to suggest there are two interrelated things. Uh, the first one is, and this in my knowledge uh, is at least 40 years old, that Australia is uh, particularly financial commentators and people like that, which influence the way management works, particularly boards, mm. are too concentrated on short-term results. The three-month figure. Yep. Uh, and the emphasis that boards have to look after shareholder interests, which mean always profit. Yep. So that's the first thing. Uh, you go to Japan, as an example, and what are their timescale? 40 years or 20 years? Not three months. Yep. So that's the first very negative influence. And the second one is that all ideas don't pay off. Uh, I worked with some creativity consultants 
in the United Kingdom about 20 years ago, and they ran an uh, idea-generating business. Mm -hmm. And their experience was one in 88 ideas paid off. Wow, now, okay. so, uh, and paid off enough to justify yep. all the work in the 87, which didn't work. Yeah. And the second thing was they didn't throw the 87 away because the ideas which were there could have future potential. Yep. But if you want ideas, you have to encourage people that making a mistake isn't necessarily bad, yep. provided you learn by it, but you've got to have many tries before you get the one that really is the bonanza. Yeah. And I'd like, obviously, your reactions to those. I, on the second point, I absolutely agree. I mean, one of the things that I, I say a bit is the key to having a good idea is to have lots of bad ones before it. You know, you only get to the good idea after you've kind of gone through that process. I love the fact that there's 88 that didn't, like 87 that didn't work. I think even for Google, that would be a tough, tough sell. So whoever, what was that company? Do you know that? In England, okay, okay. Okay, uh, but I love the attitude because, you know, particularly in a, in a model where if one does come off, it can pay for everything else. You have to build a culture where you're just constantly asking for ideas. You, you're throwing things forward. You, know, you don't get to 88 tries unless people are actively pitching things all the time. And I think the, the, the thing, the follow-on to that is that you have to reward the 87. You have to be vocal about the fact that you know, this was a great try. What did you learn from it? Give them a moment in the sun to talk about the things they learned and how they're going to take that forward and not make them feel like they've got the dunce cap on and they're not the 88th idea that got the nod. So actively celebrating failure, at least not admonishing people for failure. I mean, at the very least, not tearing people down. That, that's a great start. Celebrating failure, I admit, might be a little hard sometimes, particularly from, from, you know, if you do believe in the tall poppy thing but at least not admonishing people for the fact that they tried and it didn't work. A noble failure is a good thing. Hi, yes. following on from that point, which was one that I was going to make, because I, I met someone a few years ago who was Canadian who had lost a business, and they were saying that they put that on their CV, that they had lost a business. You would never do that in Australia. No. You would never do that. If you've lost a business, if you've gone through bankruptcy, you are crucified. You are crucified legally and socially. Yep. It completely dulls the entrepreneurial spirit, which is one thing that irritates me about Australian culture. Yeah. And, and, and it's more than that as well, even just uh, legally, or even the, like the tax system. Uh, I, I'm a solicitor, I've acted for s small IT businesses with brilliant ideas. And, you know, when they brought in the GST a number of years ago, the idea, my understanding, I could be wrong, but my understanding was that the payroll tax was supposed to be gotten rid of in the States. Now, it wasn't. And my understanding is that the largest cause of small business failure in New South Wales is uh, payroll tax uh, being enforced by the ATO on behalf of the New South Wales government. Mm -hmm. It kicks in when you have 13 employees. And for small businesses, turnover is an issue. Yep. And then suddenly you've got this big tax. I, I just think structurally, legally, but also in terms of the socioeconomic and the, the power of the big banks, 
we're not geared up for entrepreneurship. We don't encourage it. Yeah. So I think it's more than I think there are lots of people who have brilliant ideas here. Yeah. You know, and are very creative. I mean, I've been dabbling in screenwriting for 15 years. I would never put that on my CV. So it was interesting yeah. about your. That's your, a sh- it's such a shame. Know, never put it on my CV, but I, I think that it's more than that. It's not just the tall poppy syndrome. Yeah, it, it's definitely more to it. And so I, I love the story about the, the Canadian person who does it on the CV. There, in, in Silicon Valley, a, a good number of my friends who I was working with left to do startups. And the mentality they had was that if it works, great, gravy train, startup, fantastic. If it doesn't work, then I can come back at Google at a higher level because I'll have learned all of this stuff trying to do a startup. So you really want to push the fact that you did a startup. And this, the, the mentality, again, is, is this one of, like, I'm more interested in what you will do. What's the way you think? What's the, what's the approach? Where's that entrepreneurial spirit? Rather than what you have done. And there's, a, there's also this idea of, um, this is an educational thing, just focusing on UWA. One of the things I was struck by when I first got to the UK was that everyone I was working with in marketing, I have a marketing degree, so therefore I get a marketing job. I was working with people who have a degree in classics from Oxford or philosophy, politics and, and economics and from Cambridge and all these kind of great schools and great things had nothing to do with marketing because no one cared. It was more about what you will do. You're a smart person. You're an interested person. You can display all this talent. Let's figure out how to get that out of you. And, and the idea of, of, of having done a startup, I think, is ticking so many boxes in the type of person you are, the entrepreneurial spirit, the rounded aspect, you've learned everything from how to figure out how to rent an office space through to the revenue streams through to the marketing. Like you, you will learn so much more. Your, your curve in that is so much more valuable to a prospective employer than someone who just stayed in the one role, but it looks great on a, on a straight-line CV. And so that we, we, it's, it's saddening to think that that's the case, but I know it is. Hence why I was surprised that the line about me being in a band was, I was like, wow, that certainly, in, 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 if I do subsequent um, interviews, it'll, that will bump up now. <laughs> I, I figured out that that's good. Uh, the fact that you do screenwriting, I mean, I would, I, I would love that we could find a way to put that to the fore, that that would, I mean, you, you, it might not be part of what you do every day, but it says something about you. And in an environment where we have to get faster, we have to become more innovative, we just have to. There is no debate about it. Australia has to become more innovative. We have to fuel people with that, that mindset. I mean, that should be something that a good people ops, HR, hiring committee, whoever it is, looks at that and goes, there's something there we need to go a little deeper on. I'm in a startup is the 2015 equivalent of I'm in a band, so I think you've made the right decision yeah. there. I think we've got time for maybe one or two more questions. There's a couple around. Uh, just building on your topics that you discussed earlier about bringing more women into STEM and also boosting creativity, I'm currently studying teaching and I've done my placements and everything, but I've noticed in the classroom there's massive issues with bringing women into STEM. For example, when I did chemistry in year 11 and 12, which was a good couple of years ago, I was only one of two girls in my chemistry class mainly because the issues that we were discussing, they weren't very interesting, they were very outdated to an extent. So I think a big shift needs to be made in the curriculum. And that's also brought up in creativity. I'm studying secondary teaching of um, English and ancient history. Big issues that we're getting as teachers is, why are we learning this? Sorry, why are we learning this? So for example, in maths, why are certain topics being discussed when all you have to do is just plug it into a computer and it's all solved for you. Or in um, English, for example, 
the biggest issue I've seen around HSC time is because one of the topics for the HSC is creative writing. A lot of students are so focused, so they know how to write an essay so well. They could do it in their sleep, but when it comes to creative writing, they freeze up because yep. you know the essay <laughs> component is so you know embodied and so you know hammered home to them. Do you think a, um, a curriculum shift is necessary in order to boost this um, innovation that we need as Australians? Yeah, I do. I do. I talk about creativity a lot, and then I talk about STEM a lot, and people think they're different things. But I, I find them very, very linked. I think that the idea of creativity is around divergent thinking. It's about taking two disparate fields but being able to see a connection in a path that wasn't there before. And there's creativity to be celebrated within maths. There's creativity to be celebrated across the STEM spectrum. And I think we do need to make an effort in the curriculum to draw that out, to make it more fun. I, saw, I read something today which I think is fascinating, which I want to know more about, but is everyone familiar with Minecraft? It's like the phenomenon, kids love it. Like it's, so Microsoft bought the company that made Minecraft for like $2.5 billion. Everyone's trying to figure out like how is this a fit for Microsoft and all this kind of thing. They've just figured out a way to get kids learning how to code through Minecraft now. They're launching it. It's for this hour of code celebration. And they're going to use that as the Trojan horse to get kids thinking about computer code through Minecraft. That's the kind of thinking I think we need to get to. It's, I mean, I know how the education system works. It's going to be so difficult to change the curriculum to that degree, but certainly corporations and people, uh, organizations like Google can play a role in this stuff. But the old models are just going to keep us with the same statistics, the same declining statistics in terms of the number of students going through STEM, particularly women going through STEM. If we keep on doing what we... was Einstein's quote, if the, the definition of insanity is... is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. We're going to have to do something different. We're going to have to find divergent ways of teaching the curriculum in order to get to divergent thinking from people. Does that answer your question? Okay, good. Just um, following up on innovation in Australia, one thing that drew me to this talk was the word innovation. As you've heard, our it's one of our Prime Minister's favourite words in the last um, few weeks. Every sentence is innovation or innovative. And a lot of the things that are coming out today, curriculum, that's federal. Culture, that is something that only our leaders can change. Do you think it's something which is going to come from federal, like Canberra itself? Like the lack of a science minister was shocking, you know, for two and a half years. And you're talking about STEM and the culture of denying science um, for <laughs> as a political platform is even more crazy. Do you think that it's not actually up to companies, but actually would need a culture and environment where federal would actually encourage companies like Google or comparing it to America? You don't see that, you know, anti anything. I mean, it's there, but it's not so, so yeah. um, key to a yeah. society. Yeah. The beauty about corporations is they move quicker than government. And I think we have to make some pretty rapid change to it. But government can have a greater scale impact. So it, it's, it's figuring out the balance between the two. And I think the influencing power of corporations to get things done in order to change the agenda from government is the way that that, that will probably work. I don't have a great answer. I, mean, I, I get a little cynical when I, I, I feel like we need to rely on government to impact this difference. It's, I mean, as you say, like the lack of a science minister. What, I mean, come on. I mean, you, you, can't, you can't take Australia seriously I, I just, it, in order for us to truly be an innovative company, a country to make a difference on the world stage, these things have to be absolute priorities. 
I mean, it's just, it, like, I, I feel like this is such an, a non-negotiable thing. It's just a, such a reality that we have to move faster. We have to get better at it. And I, I get a little dismayed at thinking that government has to do all of it. So I think of, of corporations are the influencers to get the, 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 the sharper stuff done quickly, but governments to eventually figure it out in order to make the scale change. I wanted to talk about innovation too, so uh, okay. following on the previous question. We hear a lot about innovation in Australia recently. You've used the word probably two dozen times in mm. the last uh, 40 minutes or so. We even have a 25-year-old minister assisting on innovation in Australia, so it's going to happen. But I'd be interested in uh, your views on a definition of innovation. What does it mean to Google? Yep. And I'll just preface uh, that by saying, to me, it's commercialization of invention, two components to it, inventing and then commercializing. Yep. And we fail. We don't do very well on the latter one of those, but, but could I hear your views on that, please? Yeah. So I, I get this question a lot as well, like innovation, and, and I think we were talking about this a little earlier. Uh, when you talk about innovation, a lot of people's go-to is just like a, a shiny new thing. It's like, oh, that iPod is so innovative. It's like, yes, it is, absolutely. But I think the innovation that, that I'm trying to talk about is, is more of this disruptive level of innovation. So it is absolutely this idea of commercialization of product, but it's, 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 it's changing ways of thinking as well to me. So it, it can be less about the physical sometimes, more about you know, the, 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 the mental process. So how are we going to change people's minds about, I mean, when, when you talk about stuff with Google, so a quick anecdote. I've just come from Singapore this morning, took the red eye in. Uh, I'm feeling surprisingly chirpy, actually. Um, maybe some champagne afterwards will help that even more. But uh, I was in, in Singapore because we're talking about a new product for Google. I can't go into details around it, but we were, we were sitting there and we were talking about how we develop a new product for Google. Um, and it's it was really interesting stuff, fascinating stuff. A lot of people in the room were thinking about innovation in terms of what are the bells and whistles we can add to this thing? What are, the, what, are the, what are the things we can throw on top to make it work? Where I was trying to push us, and I'm not saying that I'm the oracle of all knowledge for this stuff. I mean, it's, it's a very much a shifting definition. But I was trying to get us thinking away from the older models that kind of got us into the fix of where we were initially with this product. The, it's an innovative style of thinking rather than innovation, per se, which is a, a harder definition, a softer definition. And it's a trickier one to, to get, but effectively, what I'm trying to do more of is create a space to sort of incubate things, innovation as incubation. So you've got a space where people can come together, try and get to that disruptive thinking in, a, in, a, in a, an environment where that is, that is asked for, that is challenged, that is rewarded, and hopefully successful. But innovation, to me, I'm looking at this through the frame of Google, is less helpful if it's about the shiny thing. It's more helpful if it's about new paths of thinking, new ways of doing things, trying to disrupt the model that we may have had in place up until now. I know that's a bit of a, a trickier, harder definition, but this is the struggle I have sort of day in, day out when I talk to people about this stuff. Um, but, uh, but, and that's not to discount the commercialization of product as well, because that is absolutely something that, that we don't do good enough in Australia. We push people offshore to go and get the things done, the ideas that form here. We push people offshore to get that sort of stuff done. So we need to improve that. Hey, Lee, how's it going? I actually did the Google marketing challenge back when I was in uni, so... Great. Good on you. Thank you. Um, I want to ask how you feel about sort of maybe innovations become almost like a buzzword yeah. and that people are almost getting fatigued by it. Yeah. Um, especially I've noticed sort of when you think about leadership teams, 
they tend to be a bit of an older demographic and they're sort of like almost sick of it. Yeah, I've, to the point we were saying before, I'm, I'm kind of tired of, of trying to define innovation so much. It's like, it, I want to come up with a better word for what we do. And I think it might be something around incubation or, or, or something to that effect. And that'll probably get tired again very quickly. The difficulty in it is that it's not easily defined. It seems cool, it seems like something we should do, and people have an amorphous concept of it, and they, they know it's important, but they don't know what it is. And that makes it hard. And that's why I think there's a little fatigue for it too, because a lot of people say, we're gonna create an innovation department within our organization. And it's not really innovation, it's kind of the shiny thing. They'll do some shiny stuff every now and then. And everyone can be happy that when they do an internal deck and they show it to people, we have an innovation team. Great, box ticked. And that's why I'm trying to move us, or trying to get us thinking about the definition in terms of, of, of new paths of thinking, trying to, trying to create a safer space for, for getting things done. The incubation model, because I think that's it's probably more helpful. But as I said, that word's going to get tired soon as well. I think half my battle is going to be trying to figure out how to define it is, what it is I do, and then kind of find the shifting sands of what that name might be. But innovation is, is yeah, like, like, I take your point entirely. And I, if, you, if you can help me find a better name, please tell me. Thank you for downloading today's episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Are you interested in volunteering? UWA provides you the opportunity to mentor a student, organise a reunion, or even help at a graduation. Visit our website and find out how you can make a difference today. Thank you.